0: You're listening to the Conversations Speaking With podcast. Randomized trials, testing a theory by effectively flipping a coin and randomly allocating people to a treatment group or a control group, are used extensively in medical research. It's the gold standard in research methods. And increasingly, big companies like Google, Facebook, and even media organisations are using randomised trials to work out how to get the most attention from users. The shade of blue on the Google search bar, which you probably use every day, was actually chosen using a randomised trial. And that's the subject of Andrew Lee's new book, Randomisters, How Radical Researchers Changed Our World. He's the current federal member for Fenner and the Shadow Assistant Treasurer But prior to his political life, he was a professor of economics at the Australian National University. He spoke with the University of Melbourne's Associate Professor Fiona Fidler about how we should be using randomised trials to drive more decisions in public life, the current crisis happening in research circles around reproducing results, and the solutions in public policy we might be missing out on because we're afraid of testing our assertions.
1: Can you tell me why you wrote this book?
2: I've always been fascinated by randomised trials ever since I did my PhD at Harvard. I remember being struck by the power of randomization and uh, you know, the sheer simplicity of it. The fact that you can explain the method to your uncle uh, in a way in which I simply can't explain a whole lot of the fancy statistical techniques that I used as an economist, whether it's regression discontinuity or matching or differences in differences or instrumental variables. I've given months of my life to, uh, to, to, to running these sorts of analyses, um, but they don't have the sort of same clean, hands-off uh, approach that a, that a randomised trial does. And so in some sense, the power just flows directly from the simplicity.
1: The examples in your book are extremely and I assume deliberately diverse so you talk about program evaluation of international aid schemes, randomised controlled trials of real versus sham surgery, education and classroom experiments, message framing and marketing studies, you talk about Sesame Street. Uh, I want to ask two things I guess. First what unites these examples for you and Second, which is your favourite? Which can we learn the most from? (laughs) Uh,
2: Well, it's hard to go past uh, sham surgery, Uh, surgery in which uh, patients randomly agree to either get the real surgery or to be sliced open, not have the surgery performed, be sewn up again, Uh, and not be told afterwards that that's what's happened to them. Um, Sham surgery is so far developed to the extent that they will actually keep patients uh, on the table for the same duration as the real experiment. Uh, There's a Melbourne University researcher by the name of Peter Chung who's pioneering this, Uh, and I remember the first question I asked him is, who would consent to sham surgery? Uh, And he said, Andrew, you you have to realise the extent to which people will do what their surgeon suggests. Uh, he said, sometimes even uh, I need to make sure that my patients having initially consented to my face, have a debrief with a nurse who really explains, now you honestly understand, you might be sliced open and not get the operation. Uh, so that's, that's fascinating. It's producing really interesting results. Three quarter uh, patients feel better after surgery, but in half the cases, the sham surgery patients feel just the same as the real surgery patients.
1: And what unites these diverse examples? Yes,
2: so it's uh, it's that powerful tool of tossing a coin to assign people to a treatment and control group. Uh, the sheer simplicity of uh, being able to set up a credible counterfactual uh, by, uh, by, by using uh, randomness and the law of large numbers. Uh, so if you want to know whether uh, sleep makes you happier, you might take 200 people, toss a coin. Uh, 100 be heads, 100 be tails, you ask the heads group to get an extra night's sleep uh, and then you survey happiness uh, afterwards and uh, if the heads group are happier then you're pretty sure you've got a causal effect of sleep on happiness uh, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily be able to get from a mere observational study which might be uh, plagued by the fact that happy people tend to go to bed earlier. Reverse causality. I
1: I think it's fair to say that there's a clear argument through the book that you think there should be more randomised trials. In which areas is there most saliently an absence of this type of evidence?
2: Law is one area that uh, has almost an entire absence of randomised trials. There's some in the law enforcement area, the uh, domestic violence randomised trials, which very much change practice towards uh, arresting uh, offenders. Uh, and the drug court randomised trial in New South Wales which showed that spending a bit more and working on the addiction problem uh, was better than the traditional criminal justice process. But by and large law has, hasn't done many randomised trials, you wouldn't get many randomisters within law schools. Uh, plastic surgery is uh, almost, uh, random, randomised trials are almost entirely absent, uh, apparently plastic surgery is is basically uh, a craft and uh, people whose job it is to uh, to, to fix a, a nose that's a bit skew um have their own way of doing it and those uh, those techniques aren't generally evaluated. Uh, and then, of course, education policy, social social policy, uh, surgery are areas where the randomisters are making inroads, but, but very slowly. Not everything can be randomised, but many more things should be randomised.
1: The, there's another strong message running through the book, I think, and that is that randomised trials don't necessarily have to be enormous or expensive. You've anticipated um, a criticism, I guess, that people will be resistant to this idea because they think it's beyond the scope of what they can afford or manage?
2: Yes, I think we look at the, the famous randomised trials, Perry Preschool, which randomises uh, across high quality early childhood and follows kids up for, uh, for 40 years afterwards. And we look at the millions of dollars there and think if you don't have millions of dollars you can't do a randomised trial. Uh, but sometimes they're just about free as uh, as when uh, the uh, in, uh, government, Indian government in Andhra Pradesh decided to, in the rollout of biometric smart cards that it would roll them out across 19 million people, uh, not in an ad hoc way, but in a random way. Uh, they couldn't give it to, every, to, to everyone, and so they, uh, they, they allowed the researcher uh, Karthik Malalitaran and his co authors uh, to learn something about the causal impact. Likewise, progressor conditional cash transfers to uh, Mexi- Mexican villages conditional on going to school. Uh, they couldn't do all the villages in year one, year one. They had to spread them over two years. Um, so why not toss a coin and decide who's getting year one, year two? And then the really simple things, uh, like the experiment that I once did when I was teaching at the Australian National University to see whether wearing a tie made my students rate uh, rate my lectures as better. Uh, surveyed them after each lecture. Tossed a coin to decide whether or not I'd wear a tie and it turned out that uh, the quality of my attire had uh, no impact (laughs) on students' ratings.
1: How do you you balance this message that trials don't have to be big or expensive with uh, arguments that there are already too many trials that don't have sufficient statistical power or aren't Mm. sufficiently well designed to carry out their purpose?
2: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, you talk to a lot of the medical researchers, whether that's uh, uh, people in universities or people in pharmaceutical companies, and they really talk about how much they're struggling to get people to sign up for randomized trials and and to get, as you say, the sample size that you need in order to either precisely discern uh, uh, that the drug is working, or else to be pretty sure that that you can actually reject that the drug is working um, because uh, a very small randomised trial will invariably end up with with the treatment the control group being statistically indistinguishable. Uh, They're doing a lot now to join up uh, trials across the world. Uh, I spoke to a kidney researcher at uh, the University of Queensland who said that uh, he essentially uh, doesn't do any randomised trials now that aren't multi-country randomised trials, partly because each country is in a sense a, a replication, uh, a simultaneous replication, uh, but partly also because different uh, population groups, different ethnicities might react differently to cer- certain drugs. Uh, and ideally, if you're aiming to publish in The Lancet or the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, you want a result that, that holds up globally these days because global researchers uh, are acting on, on what they read in those top journals.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. There are similar initiatives in psychology as well to try and connect up trials like this. There's a program called Study Swap, actually.
2: So how does Study Swap work?
1: Um, Well, it works. You can either advertise that you have a trial that people might want to contribute to, or you can advertise for someone to, to do that. So you can... So then, it's an exchange program,
2: and and then the aim is that people will all uh, produce a single paper at the end that'll that, that'll have all the names of the researchers in different countries.
1: Pot- potentially, it wouldn't necessarily always end that way, but there would be some other data sharing arrangement. Sounds yeah. great. Yeah. I
2: mean, the the sort of the craft nature of a lot of uh, uh, research is, I think, I think problematic. It's. It uh, struck me very much at the Australian National University that uh, we seemed to be working a little bit more like artisans uh, than, than probably was optimal given the technology and the networks that uh, the, the internet and computing power had provided to us.
1: This topic obviously connects to one of the, very directly to one of the other chapters in your book called Building Better Feedback Loops. Which is towards the end of the book and it discusses the now infamous reproducibility crisis in science, by which I mean that I, the, over the last five years or so large-scale meta-science projects in psychology, biomedicine, economics have systematically and routinely demonstrated that roughly a little over half of the results in our published literature can be successfully replicated in follow-up studies. And in your book, you describe some of the well-established causes of this too, which include perversive incentives that come from journals only wanting to publish statistically significant effects of researchers' cherry-picking results, p-hacking and so on. And I wonder if you've seen the estimates of the cost of these irreproducible research. No, I haven't. There's a a paper... in clinical biomedicine that ran an economic model estimating the cost of irreproducible randomised trials in clinical biomedicine, the cost in the US alone is $28 billion a year. Wow. So what kind of protections do you think there are against these problems? What advice, for example, would you give to someone trying to interpret or take action on the basis of published randomised trial results? What warning signs can they look for to make sure they've got something that is reproducible?
2: I think it's important to uh, have uh, large large sample size and uh, we should give significant credit to instances in which the same finding has held up in different different contexts. Uh, so uh, if you've got something that's just significant at the five, uh, 5% level, uh, then we might say there's a one in twenty chance that uh, that that is uh, uh, just just due to uh, to luck alone. Uh, but if you see that twice, it's one on twenty, one in twenty times one in twenty, so now it's one in four hundred, which is a significantly more powerful result. Just a single replication suddenly takes you from uh, an, an event which will be true once, which will be uh, false once every couple of journal issues, to a result which will be false probably only in, in a few years of, uh, of, of journal publications um, but but also being aware of, of some of these um unusual effects which have to do with high-status journals. And so I think it's John Ioannidis who's made the point that top journals like to publish surprising results. And so if surprising results are driven in part by luck, then results published in top journals may be wrong more often than results published in lower-tier journals. Uh, it, it's it's a, a little counterintuitive before when you first hear it, and then it just becomes terrifying. Uh, but, you know, as you say, the reproducibility crisis has... Uh, a, a third of findings holding up in psychology, uh, a ninth of findings hold, holding up in uh, subfield of genetics, uh, oncology, haematology, half of all results be- be- being uh, replicable in uh, in macroeconomics. Uh, so there really is uh, big challenges that go well beyond Brian Nozick's work in psychology.
1: I think looking for uh, to see whether the effect has been replicated would be great advice. The obstacle we face with that is that in the published psychology literature, less than 1% of articles published are replication studies. In ecology, it's even less. It's a very small fraction of a percent. Um, We don't know the statistics, those figures for other disciplines, Mm -hmm. but it's unlikely that they would be much different given that the same incentives in publication bias apply across disciplines. In the absence of looking for replications, what do we hold on to?
2: I mean, I think this is one strong argument for national ju- journals. So like uh, the economic record in, in, my, in my own field uh, will often publish papers where researchers have looked at a finding uh, in the US and look to replicate it in Australia. Uh, and people who, you know, occasionally people will just turn up their nose in the economic record and say, well, really, you know, everyone should be aiming for the American economic review. But if the American Economic Review won't publish replications, then having uh, a Canadian Economic Review and a Chinese Economic Review and uh, an Australian Economic Review uh, provides outlets for for those sorts of replications. Still, though, you've got a challenge as to where... An American scholar publishes a a replication paper uh, and the willingness of journal editors now to have special issues devoted to replication I think is is good, Uh, but as you say, it's a real challenge for the social sciences. Uh, What are the incentives for a bright young researcher to replicate? one, uh, one uh, when I was at Harvard, there was a, a political science class which focused on getting PhD students to uh, to, to replicate papers, um, and that was that that was that was valuable as well. The problem there was that the papers they produced were only publishable if they found the original result was wrong, uh, and so that then creates a, a kind of reverse p hacking problem where you're essentially You've got an incentive among the young researcher to try every perverse, different way of running the analysis, so that you can undermine the original paper. Uh, rather, than, so their goal is is flipped now, uh, and and like the original researcher, they don't have a perfect alignment to to, uh, to aim for the truth. So, journals of replicability uh, and special issues on replication, I think, are vital.
1: Towards the end of your book, you briefly mention big data and developments in machine learning and many people of course are working towards developing and improving methods of establishing causal mechanisms and testing theories that don't require randomised control trials. Um, how do you see the future of that? Do randomised control trials have a place in this big data machine learning future? So
2: I think if you're merely looking for uh, correlations in the data, then big data can do you you fine. A machine learning algorithm uh, run by a marketer who is uh, merely looking for the characteristics of the people who are likely to buy their soap uh, will be able to to, uh, mine a data set and and essentially just look for whatever patterns are in there. Uh, But a researcher who is looking for the causal impact of... Uh, the neighbourhood in which you grow up on your life chances uh, will still want to be looking for uh, induced or naturally occurring randomness in order to get that, uh, that causal impact. Uh, and the uh, fact that Google, with 15 exabytes of data, still is running randomised trials plenty does tell you that having a lot of data points uh, is no substitute for, uh, for, for doing randomised trials if you want to discern a true causal effect.
1: Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize-winning behavioural economist whose work you touch on in the book, was once asked what the one thing in the world he would eliminate was if he had a magic wand. And his answer was overconfidence, a pervasive cognitive bias. Mm. What would yours be?
2: Uh, so I really like the uh, I, I like the Kahneman answer. Um, I certainly think that one of the reasons that I'm drawn to randomised trials is a sense that while we always should be passionate about achieving goals such as ending poverty, cleaning up the environment, bringing about uh, gender equity, we're speaking on International Women's Day, uh, you should be scientific and critical about the means to get there uh, and willing to assess the... Uh, means that you believe are, are effective and, and to find them wanting and then to go and go and find something else. Uh, have, have, have a passion about your goals uh, but don't get overly attached to the means of delivering them.
1: What would you consider to be a, a great success of this book, a, a successful outcome if you got one main message across?
2: More randomised trials, I, I'd like to encourage the existing randomisters and uh, here in Melbourne we've got uh, people running uh, randomised trials of uh, intensive support for uh, people who've been living on the streets for decades. We've got a program in West Heidelberg which is uh, do, looking, running a randomised trial of high quality early childhood for extreme, programs for extremely disadvantaged children, uh, many of whom have been uh, subject to or witnessed family violence. Uh, And so, and of course, Peter Chung, who I mentioned before, doing uh, surgical randomized trials. I'd like to encourage those researchers, but encourage others also to learn from them and perhaps even encourage people to use randomised trials in, in their own life. Uh, the subtitle of, uh, of, of my book was uh, itself chosen through a randomised trial based on uh, a dozen possible subtitles that, uh, that my editors and I uh, liked. Uh, it took an hour to set up, it cost $50 uh, and it produced a better subtitle uh, than my uh, editors or, uh, and I could have done uh, just by uh, scratching our chins and thinking hard about the problem.
1: You do anticipate through the book some some further objections, some limitations of randomised trials. One is. Uh a common argument, an ethical argument?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the, this is the main concern people have about randomised trials. They're worried that uh, that if you have a potentially worthy treatment, then it might be unethical to deny that to, uh, to, to the control group. Uh, my response to that is if you absolutely know the treatment works, then absolutely it's unethical to deny it to people, uh, but if you don't know the uh, treatment works, then indeed there's some who argue that it's unethical not to evaluate it properly. Uh, We may think that interventions work well, but some good-sounding programs have actually turned out to do harm. Uh, In the social sciences, we look at Scared Straight, the program which took uh, adolescents, put them uh, behind bars for a day to see what prison life was like, and under low-quality evaluations, seemed to cut crime by up to half. Uh, Put to the test via a randomised trial, it turned out to increase crime uh, and is now recommended against by the non-profit Campbell Collaboration or take the drug uh, thalidomide uh, rolled out across Europe uh, without high quality uh, evaluation. Uh, when it got to the United States, uh, the uh, government scientist in charge of assessing new drugs, Francis Kelsey, uh, said, no, we need proper trials of thalidomide before it's uh, it's given to pregnant mums. Uh, as a result, the uh, the awful spate of birth, birth defects which occurred as a result of the use of thalidomide uh, were almost entirely uh, outside the United States. Uh, And there's an an annual Francis Kelsey Award uh, from the the FDA gives out to acknowledge an employee who uh, stands up for truth and good science, as Francis Kelsey did.
1: What are the? What do you think the limits of controlled, randomised controlled trials are? Or to ask it another way, what do you? What do you think is the role of leadership versus? evidence from controlled trials
2: i think social policy uh, researchers have uh, a bit to learn from the approach that cancer researchers take if you want to bring about uh, full employment among indigenous australians i think that's as difficult a problem as curing cancer Uh, but when we look about talk about curing cancer we produce ideas in the lab uh, we put them out into trial uh, nine out of ten don't make it don't make it through to uh, to actually being given to patients uh, we don't take that same scientific and critical approach to ways of uh, of, of boosting Indigenous employment rates. And, and I think we could do more to uh, uh, not, not lose our passion for the goal, but to be a little bit more scientific and critical about uh, how we actually get there. Sure, we're not going to be able to randomise uh, national def- defence policy, uh, environmental approvals. Uh, there's a, a spate of things which uh, which aren't susceptible to uh, to randomised trials. Uh, but there's a lot more we could do to bring that um, critical experimenting society philosophy to the way in which government operates.
0: Andrew Lee's Random Misters is out now in paperback and ebook from Black Ink Books. And Andrew also hosts his own podcast on living a healthy, happy, and ethical life called The Good Life, which you can find in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And just a slight correction here at the end. During the interview, Fiona said that a little over half of results could be successfully reproduced in meta studies. She's since been in contact to clarify that it's actually just less than half. Thanks for listening to this episode of Speaking With. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment with your feedback and any suggestions on future topics in the Apple Podcasts app.